This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Thank you so much. You're so friendly. <laughs> You're all terribly friendly. Now I'm looking, I hadn't looked at you all before. It's quite a lot, actually. This is a lot of people. And I was quite excited. I get quite readily excited, as you'll discover. But to think that this represents the vineyard presence in this city is really, really lovely. So um, John and I are thrilled. My husband and I are delighted to be here. My husband and I do a lot of this stuff together. We travel together. We work together. That, that husband you're referring to is, is you. Deceased. Which one is that? You talk about. Oh, the Duke of Edinburgh. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I wasn't quite aligning with the Queen. I have less mobility issues. What? <laughs> yes, my husband and I. Yes, maybe you're right. Anyway, John sitting here in the front was always troublesome. I mean, we, it's a dangerous thing. However, I, there was an occasion that we were together flying to Copenhagen, Denmark, to do a weekend with their leaders, which was lovely. And uh, we were flying out of Gatwick, which was about a 40-minute flight to Copenhagen, okay? It was a 40-minute flight, <laughs> like I said, 40 minutes, and we were in separate rows. Now, we have been married for 42 years, in love for 46, and we've known each other for 50. So, I mean, we're rocking along. And we were in separate rows, which is fine. But John cut up rough and said to the flight attendant, excuse me, um, my wife and I have been married for 42 years, in love for 46, and um, British Airways clearly hasn't hoisted this, and they've put us in separate rows. I wonder if you could amend it. And the woman looked a little... And anyway, she went to everybody and tried to reorganise, you know, all the exit rows and so forth. And so on. I mean, he was in the row behind me and um, making a fuss. And she came back and she said to me, I'm so sorry, we, we can't get anybody to move. And John then piped up again. He said, I don't want to make life more difficult for you, but you see, I do struggle with anxiety issues and separation anxiety. <laughs> and I thought, this is getting very silly. <laughs> And in the end, she went again, poor thing. And she came back to me and she said, now look, dear, I'm so sorry. I simply can't make it work. And then she said, you could probably do with a little break. <laughs> so anyway, do you know, joking apart, and it was a laugh, or oh, we did, we laughed. But she came through from first class with two little bottles of champagne. I mean, how sweet was that? And she gave one to Roger and one to Roquet, and that was lovely. And John, you know, necked his down very quickly. And I was sitting next to a girl who was drinking water out of plastic. Well, what would you have done? Of course we shared our champagne. And then as we left, the crew lined up. I mean, this was EasyJet's finest hour, of which there aren't many. Was it British Airways? Oh, well, it would never have been easy yet, that's for sure. <laughs> British Airways, they lined up in their uniform to salute us for loving each other so dearly and being married for so long. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? All to say that although he's sitting there in the front row, it could be both of us saying the same thing, which is that we're thrilled to be here. We're loving our weekend. We are hugely buzzed about the presence of the vineyard in this city. And to see you all in one place is a real party. I wore my new party dress because I was so excited. So anyway, here we go. I felt the... What we do. We started the vineyard... 
We are these mysterious people with funny voices. We started the we, we started the first sounds heroic, and it really wasn't. But we had the first house group in this country uh, started in our little front room in Wimbledon in 1987, and we came back from having trained in Anaheim with John Wimber. We came back, and there were four of us. We were the church planting threat to this land. There was John, there was me, James was six, and Marcus was six months old, and that's how we began. And then one or two people started to come towards us and we started house groups that just started very, very small in our front room. These rogues and villains were among the first. You can talk with them later. But um, it was extraordinary and it grew and we had a wonderful time. And after about 21 something years of leading the Southwest London Vineyard, we handed that on to our successors. And then we took over the leadership of the vineyard in this country, which was growing apace like Topsy. It was a wonderful thing, is a wonderful thing. And then about eight years ago, we had handed that on to John and Debbie Wright, who lead the vineyard in Trent, out of which I think uh, Seven was planted. So we're all sort of cousins and brothers and sisters. It's all very incestuous and lovely. However, um, we, uh, we then oversaw the movement. And quite honestly, many of you will know John and Debbie Wright. If you don't, you need to, because they are very remarkable. As leaders in this country, they are extraordinary. And John and I are the happiest of all to say, to lead the cheering and to say, quite honestly, they've moved, taken the movement on led it on in a way that we could never have done. They've just been imaginative, creative, brave, and they're doing a fantastic job. So we now oversee, or coordinate, they say, the global vineyard um, around the world. And the vineyard is working now in 95 to 100 countries, very effectively planting churches, preaching the gospel. And then in about 16 of those countries are fully developed movements of, you know, large enough to run themselves, independent, but very closely related. And those are the movements that John and I particularly work with. Is that enough? Is that all right? I just need the okay. I felt that one of the, interestingly, when Joel was talking this morning, I felt you had so caught what the Lord wanted, because I had the same impression that God wants to encourage us and just lighten us in a way, because the truth is we have had a rough old patch. None of us have lived through anything like we've all been through in the last couple of years. And we are worn down and we are a bit beaten up. And many people have been deeply hurt. Some have been profoundly affected by deaths in their families and the sort of sickness that nobody would ever have anticipated. And yet it would seem that we're moving through that. And I feel that the Lord's heart for us is to congratulate and build us up and say, well done, you've hung in, you're still here, you're standing, but also to encourage, and I take as Bible, uh, Paul's word to the Thessalonians, where he said, therefore, therefore, and they'd been through the mill, therefore, he said, encourage one another with these words. And that's what I'm hoping, praying, believing that God wants to do this morning. So although it's been awful, now I'm juggling here a bit, hold on, going down. I'll be back. Although it has been frightful, um, we need, the first thing I want to say is we need to realize nothing has changed. Of course, our circumstances have changed, and we've all been in bubbles, and we've all more vast and socially distanced. I mean, bizarre things. Quite, quite bizarre. So in lots of ways, things have changed. And in a way, doing church has changed forever. Because, of course, we love this. This is, this is it. I mean, being together is the ultimate delight. But online church is a huge issue now. And we daren't abandon that. The people who are coming to Jesus, the people who are finding faith, the people who are growing in their faith, the people who are sick or housebound who couldn't get to church. I mean, it does have huge pluses. Although being together is, is wonderful. 
It's so good. But for all the changes, the main thing I want to say is realize nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I wanted to read you just these quick verses or little verses from Revelation chapter 4. When John said, at once, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. That, brothers and sisters, is the bottom line. That is the key to it all. There is a throne in heaven and there is someone sitting on it and he has not moved an inch. He has not lost the plot. He's not taken his eye off the ball. He's not forgotten what's going on. He's not thrown up his hands in horror. He is seated on the throne. He's seated, secure, immovable, the same as ever, on the only throne that counts for anything. The only throne that matters, this side of heaven. The roaring lion has declared, the grave has no hold on me. We sang just now, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. All of this is in Revelation, and it is wonderful. And believing in God's sovereignty, God's ultimate control, seated at the very nerve center of the universe, it is that which gives us a reason to keep standing, keep worshiping, keep rejoicing, keep knowing that nothing has basically changed. It's a glorious comfort. It's a glorious comfort. John and I have been in the last probably six months, maybe, through the most awful stuff lot of personal pain and suffering in a way we never had imagined. I thought, what is this about? And then I come here this morning and we start to sing about the, the Lord's closeness to the brokenhearted and to the people in pain and in grief. And I think, this is all I needed to hear. I walked in here, this is all I need. Because God is sovereign. And as Charles Spurgeon once said, sovereignty, providence, is a soft pillow for anxious heads. And if you take nothing away this morning, like a little party bag at the end of the morning, remember, sovereignty is a soft pillow for anxious heads. And the Lord is sovereign, and he is on the throne. And in light of that, the next thing I would always say, for all through thick and thin, is we keep worshipping. What do we do through thick and thin? We keep worshipping. John and I are closely involved with friends in New York who run a small church in Manhattan of which we've been a part and where we've been backwards and forwards a little bit. Wonderful people, amazing people. Their whole church evaporated during COVID. Everybody left. New York was emptied. The, the luster went out of the city. It suffered probably even more than in London where we were at the time. It was so painful. Everybody went. They had a very transient congregation, very diverse Everybody went home, everyone went out of the city. And I said to Kara, I said, Kara, what are you going to do? And she said, what can I do? All I know how is to worship. And she just worships. And gradually ministry builds up again and people start coming back and so forth. So keep worshipping through rough days, thick and thin. You probably know the story, you may do, of Horatio Spafford, who wrote that wonderful song, It Is Well With My Soul. Throughout, we, John and I have been um, quarantining and living on a farm during COVID, which is not a bad deal, to tell you the truth, because we were able to walk all around everywhere. But I would walk around the field singing, and I would, because nobody could hear you, it's absolute bliss. And I was singing, and my favorite song through the whole thing was that it is well with my soul. 
And Horatio Spafford, who wrote it, was a businessman in Chicago, the end of the 19th century, wealthy, well-to-do, large family. And he sent his family home, wife, son, I think four daughters, sent them home to London, to Liverpool, because they were from Britain there. And they went over, and he stayed behind because the Chicago fire hit and destroyed all his holdings. So he had to stay to work it all out. So he lost everything. But he sent the family ahead to Liverpool on a ship. Halfway across the Atlantic, the ship went down. And all four little girls were lost, drowned. And the wife went on with the son to Liverpool and telegraphed him and said, all gone, all lost. He got the next boat across the Atlantic and they reckoned to find the spot at which the boat had gone down with all his little girls. And he wrote, it is well with my soul. Which is why that line, when the sea billows roll, it is well with my soul. So be encouraged and keep worshipping and keep your eyes on the one who sits on the throne. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to know. The vineyard, you know the stories, the vineyard was born into worship. The vineyard emerged from a small group of beaten up, burnt out, worn down Philistine Christians. They said it of themselves in California. And they met together in a room in somebody's house, crying out to God, 1977, crying out, God, we're done in. We know nothing more. We, can, we have nothing more to do. We prayed all our prayers. We've read the Bible from cover to cover, and we're done in. And a young boy who really was a street boy came off the street, picked up his guitar, and started singing songs to Jesus in his desperation. And suddenly, the presence of the Lord was with them because they discovered to sing to Jesus brought with them an intimacy and a sweetness and a presence that we've just been, we are, we're heirs of all that people. We take it for granted that we can come in here and sing our hearts out and the spirit of God will meet with us as he did and as he is. But this, they fought for that, they fought for it. And this is what we were born into. It's our birthright, it's, our, it's the wind in our sails, it's the blood in our veins, it's a spring in our step, vineyard people. And because we're among family, we can say this to each other. It's what birthed this movement, and it's what will sustain this movement. And this is what I would die for, is to be able to sing these songs. And we had a wonderful Presbyterian friend come from um, Carolina to speak at our National Leaders Conference, maybe two or three years ago, pre-COVID. And he was Presbyterian, so he was very brave to come. We were actually pretty brave to risk him. But he was a fantastic preacher of the scriptures. And he went home to his church in um, Virginia, North in Virginia. And he said, I've just been with these vineyard people. It's like a sort of confessional. <laughs> and he said, and he said two things about the vineyard. He said, I discovered that when they ask the Holy Spirit to come and they ask for the presence of the Lord, they really expect it to happen. Isn't that interesting? We do. And he said, the other thing I discovered about them is that they run towards pain. Which is interesting because one of the early prophetic figures who was a, came into the vineyard and was a great blessing to many of us in the sort of 80s, he was absolutely wacky, which sometimes happens with these people, but he was amazingly effective. And he said that as he started to pray for the vineyard movement, he saw banners across the heavens, and one was worship and one was compassion. Worship and compassion. Worship and compassion. We worship the Lord and out of it we serve the people. And this is what our friend spotted. And he knew nothing. He knew nothing about the vineyard. He was on a high-risk venture to preach the scriptures. 
And he went home realizing that the worship was the key and that compassion was our currency. So that's who we are, and that's why we do it. And that's why we were talking last night with some of, some of you about that amazing verse in um, 1 Corinthians 15, where after 57 verses talking about the theology and the wonders of the resurrection, Paul said one last thing to the Corinthians in verse 58. What did he say? He said, therefore, because of everything, because of all you are, all you have, all Jesus has a giant, everything that he's done for us, therefore, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. So I suppose I'm echoing, in a way, if it's not presumptuous, and saying, my dear brothers and sisters of the vineyard in Bristol, let nothing, nothing move you. Stand firm. Because always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Every hidden prayer, every cry, every moment of loneliness, every reaching out to people, every imaginative initiative that you have shown over the last couple of years may never have been seen, never sung about, never even credited. And yet you know that in the Lord, not any of that is in vain. So you say, just what are you disheartened about? Well, I mean, I'm not. What has changed? Actually, nothing really. And what is no longer true? Is the Lord on the throne or isn't he? Is he there to be worshipped or isn't he? Has the Lion of Judah triumphed or hasn't he? Has the Lamb that was slain standing on the throne or wasn't he? You see, we've got everything to live for, to fight for, to die for. I read recently, and I love it so much, um, a French Jesuit priest called Jean-Pierre Casseau. He said this, all that happens to me, just think, everything that's happening to you, either in the last year or two, or indeed in the current circumstances, whatever you are, all that happens to me, he said, becomes bread for nourishment, soap to cleanse me, fire to purify me, and a chisel to carve divine features upon me. Do you like that? Isn't that the coolest thing? Bread for nourishment, soap to cleanse, fire to purify, and a chisel in the hands of the ultimate sculptor, a chisel to carve heavenly features upon me. It's very encouraging, it's very wonderful. It puts everything in perspective. So what else would I say we've learned through this? We've learned that we can shine in the darkness. We shine in the darkness, people. I was telling some of, the, some of you yesterday, um, I read a statistic yesterday, it just happened, it was very convenient for me, but I happened to find this statistic, which said that between 18 and 64-year-olds in this country, a huge number are now saying they're either atheist or non-religious. And it's shifted radically in the last few years. The highest proportion of non-believing people is in Scotland, God give us Scotland, 54% of the nation would say that. The second highest in this land was the southwest of England with 52%. And where you might think, oh, all is lost, that's it, throw in the sponge. Do you know that's such an incentive? It's like the enemy's thrown down the gauntlet and this is the church and we're going to pick it up. We're not having this. We're not having this. Look at the potential in this room. I don't know how many hundreds and thousands of you are of you. I always exaggerate. But there seem to be lots of people in this room. 
when we planted the church, John Wimber was our overseer, and we were just planting a church with this little tiny group of us in southwest London, and John would ring us as our overseer, and it was wonderful, and I'd answer the phone, and he'd say, um, I'd say, oh, John, how lovely to hear you. It's so encouraging when you ring, and he rather said, I only ring when the Lord tells me to. Oops. <laughs> So duly, duly chastened. He then, I said, um, let me pass you. He said, how's the church going? And I said, let me pass you on to John. You'd love to talk with him. No, he said, I don't want to talk with John. I want to talk with you. John is so conservative. You always exaggerate. <laughs> which I do, which I do. So, but what I, my point being that say there were a couple of hundred people in this room, let's be conservative. 200 circles of people you influence. 200 areas of influence you have, 200 neighborhoods, 200 families, 200 workplaces multiplied out. Imagine, just imagine how you people can shine in the darkness that is Bristol in the southwest of England. Shine in the darkness. Paul said to the Philippians, you, are, you need to be blameless and pure. Of course we do. Children of God, we know we are without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And if that was true in Philippi 2,000 years ago, how equally, if not more true, it is in Bristol 2,000 years later. And then, he said, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold on firmly to the word of life. To which my question is, how hard does a star try? Does a star wake up in the evening and think, oh, I've really got to try to shine? No, a star just is. And a star reflects the sun and its creator. And, you know, many times we go out and we do specific things, but you forget, people, what you carry. We carry the Lord Jesus. We carry his personality. The Spirit of God is within us. We take him wherever we go. We can't shrug him off. And we represent him in a perverse and crooked generation. So do be encouraged and realize, you know, you don't, you, stars just shine. Sometimes in, was it in Corinthians, he talked about we carry the fragrance of Christ. How hard do you try to be fragrant? You just are. So it's an encouraging reality. And alongside shining in the darkness and simply representing Jesus, of course, is just to prove faithful. It's like standing firm. It's, you know, God is not calling us to be massively successful. He's calling us to be completely faithful. Mother Teresa, who became, of course, world famous and didn't want to be, wonderful woman, she used to say, God is calling us to be successful, not to be successful. He's calling us to be faithful. Paul to the Corinthians, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We have a trust, brothers and sisters. We have a trust from the Lord to preach the gospel, plant churches, care for the broken, heal the sick, cast out demons. It's our trust. It's our birthright. It's what we've been told to do. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. I love him. Therefore, why would I not preach the gospel? Why would I not bind up the brokenhearted? Why would I not pray for the sick? I love him. And that's what he wants me to do. It's a sort of no-brainer. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because people in our society, people around us, are looking for those who will be faithful, good, righteous, just, truthful. Incredibly attractive virtues. And the world is looking to the church for that. It doesn't admit it. It doesn't necessarily want to say so. But you know, when we let them down, 
When we hear of leaders that crash, when we hear of Christians that throw in the towel, the world is disappointed. We are brokenhearted. The world is disappointed. And therefore, just prove faithful. Just do what he wants us to do. An interesting man in America wrote a book called the, about the vision of vocation. What is it that God has called you to do? And he said this, it is a simple grace, really, to be trustworthy, to be known as someone who does good work. That's all God is asking. And that's kind of manageable. And then what is one of the other things? I've just a couple of other little things to say to encourage you to keep cracking on. Keep doing the stuff, people. We are vineyard people, and we were taught to do the stuff. One of the cardinal texts, of course, is Jesus' mandate when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry, and you've heard this so many times, you could recite it back to me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, said Jesus, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. And then it goes on quoting Isaiah, of course, binding up the brokenhearted and so forth. And we've often said, what was his manifesto? He said, this is my election campaign. This is my manifesto. And his manifesto has now become our mandate. He gave it to the 12, then he gave it to the 72. And then before he ascended with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he said, all authority is given to me, all authority. Therefore, I'm taking it back to heaven. You'll never know anymore. No, therefore you go. You go. You wait. I'll send you the Holy Spirit, and then you go. And you do those things that I've been doing. I've shown you how. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and now you go and do it, baptizing all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's preaching the gospel and teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. That's discipling. Where do disciples get made? Where is the only disciple-making factory on the planet? The local church. The local church. Who would have thought that the Lord would entrust the future of the kingdom and of the preaching of the gospel to the local church? But he has. This is who we are. And just now and again, it's quite good to be elevated and to remind ourselves that we are who he's made us to be. And this is what he wants to do. So keep celebrating. Keep celebrating. Allow the Lord to lighten your heart. And keep celebrating who we are, what we have, what we have at our disposal. Celebrate his power and tell the stories. Celebrate his presence as you get to worship like this. Celebrate his promises, not least the ones he's given to the vineyard. When we started the vineyard in, here, as, as we said, 87, one of the first verses the Lord gave me, and week in and week out since, Isaiah 27, he says, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no harm may come to it. The vineyard is really very, very precious to the Lord. And that's what I end, end with, really. In terms of the church universal, we're very small. In terms of the church Oh, over the ages, we're very young. And yet, as Wimber said to us, the vineyard is but a thread in the great tapestry, but it is a thread of God's weaving. God intended that the vineyard should be. 
He intended that you and I should be a part of it. He intends that the vineyard should flourish. He intends that the vineyard be fruitful in this part of our land at this time. He really does have that intention. And I can't tell you strongly enough. I mean, if I was very highfalutin, I'd say I'm prophesying it over you. But I am. I think I am. God's intention, people. God's heart for you. It's that you do all this stuff that he's told us to do and that you trust him that he will make us fruitful because he's promised to watch over us. He's promised to guard us. He's promised that no harm would come to us. And I believe him with all my heart. I go to the stake for this stuff. It's true, people. And that's what we're commissioned to do. Do you like it? Do you think? Should we do it? Let's. Why don't you stand and we'll pray for one another that God would fan into flame the gift of God that is in us, all of us. All of us. Well, come, Holy Spirit. We take our friend's words as a great compliment that when we ask you to come, we expect you to. We thank you for your presence. I thank you for every wonderful man, woman, and child in this place this morning. I thank you that they're here because they've stood firm. I thank you they're here because they shine like stars in the darkness. I thank you that they're here because you have ambition for them and for their lives and their work and everything they set their hands to in this part of the country at this stage in our history. And Lord, now I ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit and fan into flame the gift of God that is already ours. Just blow on it, fan it into flame, stir it up in us again. Come, Holy Spirit. And then we just wait while he answers our prayers. <laughs>